When it comes to artificial intelligence preeminence, there's really not that much of a surprise that Google, Facebook, and Amazon in many ways lead the way for AI innovation. Not only are they exceedingly high profit, fast growth, exciting companies that can get access to capital and can make tremendous sums of capital and were born early enough to sort of have data and digital in their blood instead of having to undergo a digital transformation as many of the large firms today. But also they're in the B2C world and people often don't give that enough credit. If you're working with consumer data, if you're Google and you're looking at streams of searches and clicks and app use, or you're Amazon and you're looking at streams of purchases and clicks and sort of interactions within their marketplace, you have your hands on massive, massive, massive volumes of data, billions and trillions of points of data that can be used to train algorithms, to build recommendation engines, and to support AI products. In the B2B world, it's not always so easy. This week on AI and industry, we focus on propensity to buy models. In other words, in a B2B domain, how do you figure out which leads, which current prospects, which people in the marketing funnel who we've maybe called before, have not called before, are most likely, most ripe for a sale? Who should we call next? Who's most likely to be a big deal if we can close them versus a small deal? These are not trivial questions in the B2B domain, and right now a lot of this is in the realm of intuition. Intuition for sales managers, intuition for sales people, and not really safely in the realm of artificial intelligence, but some of that may change. We interview this week Kiran Rama, who heads up artificial intelligence for VMware in India. VMware has tens of thousands of employees around the world. They're now a subsidiary of Dell and they're publicly traded. They sell a variety of technology solutions and Kieran focuses on what it looks like to purchase external data and to leverage internal data to basically look at our CRM, look at our pipeline and determine how to make smarter decisions, how to be predictive in terms of who's a big deal and who's a most likely best use of our time for a phone call and an email versus maybe another prospect. Again, in the B2B domain, Domain where instead of like Amazon making billions of sales per year, in a B2B domain, we may only make hundreds of sales per year, or maybe in some cases, dozens of sales per year, but those sales really matter. And being able to inform those decisions to better marshal our salespeople and our marketing efforts to drive big deals is a, again, big deal pun intended in all ways. So we're going to be diving into propensity to buy models here at Tech Emergence on the AI and Industry Podcast, what it takes to build them, what it looks like to implement them. So this is Kieran Rama with VMware. I'm Dan Fagella, and you're listening to AI and Industry. Without further ado, let's dive right in. So Kieran, I wanted to start off with just asking you a bit about kind of propensity to buy models. When we were off the microphone, you had mentioned how in a B2B context, you have a lot of leads, a lot of maybe potential people in a database, but if it's a big sale, you might only have so many customers. It's not the number of customers that a company like Amazon would have. And so propensity to buy models are important. Talk a bit about sort of how this technology works and why a company like VMware kind of leverages it now in their business. Yeah. But propensity model in simplest form is ranking order people in their likelihood to buy. So those who are at the top are more likely to buy ones at the bottom. In case you had only 10 customers, then you wouldn't need a propensity model because you could go after all 10. 
The problem happens when sales wants to target a subset of customers or when the customer set is so big and you are limited by capacity, which almost every company is because salespeople are expensive and it's difficult to get good salespeople. If you look at a company like VMware, it's public information that we have almost half a million customers on vSphere, which is our flagship product. Now, out of these half a million customers, we need to target people to sell our other products into like Visa and NSX. So for the uninitiated, VMware is a virtualization company and virtualization is a way of using software to do the hardware's job. So if you look at a product like vSAN, we have probably, we have customers which are less than 10,000. So these vSAN customers are going to be, most of the time, the people who already have vSphere. So imagine you're a salesperson in the West Coast or the US, and you are looking at targeting, you know, 2,000 customers over the next two months. In the absence of a propensity to buy model, you really are looking at a subset of that half a million that is in the US and thinking, hey, how do I go about it? So what a propensity to buy model will do is it will rank order all these half a million customers in their likelihood to buy for you as a salesperson so that you can focus on the 2,000 accounts most likely to buy. In the absence of a propensity to buy model, you would use your own business rules. You would say, hey, let me go after the companies that are enterprise, that are active customers, and you target them. Whereas in the propensity model, you'd use all these business rules to take into account all the information about a customer like his past bookings or past orders with the company, whether they're up for renewal, what is their firmographics, how big is the company, what is their sales like, how many employees they have. It would actually take all of this stuff and then build a model. So in B2B, it's be very different from B2C in the sense that in B2C, you have an individual buying. And an individual would come to the website and buy. You wouldn't go to Amazon daily to buy a new mobile phone, would you? Whereas in B2B, you know, you'd have several people from the company visiting the site and they would make the purchase decision over a period of time. So a propensity to buy model helps marketing and sales focus their energies on the customers that are most likely to buy, taking into account the advanced machine learning techniques as well as all the historical data available about the customers. Got it. Okay. And so we can dive a little bit into what this potential data would be. And I think what you had brought up early on is pretty important. If you're a business that only has 10 customers, let's say you sell into the pharmaceutical space, you know, it may be a little bit challenging to do this kind of math on 10 people. But if you have, you know, tens of thousands of folks who might buy your product, like, you know, maybe a company like VMware, then of course, you know, you have to focus a little bit more. When it comes to some of these factors that can influence propensity, I imagine this is evolving over time. For example, you might have firms that service the government that have some kind of a different financial year. And so for some reason, you're going to want to hit them up in the summertime as opposed to, you know, towards the end of the year or something like that. You know, I mean, we don't have to give away the secret sauce here, but I mean, in terms of the broad factors that are going to matter, what are some of these critical things for companies to be aware of that affect how likely somebody is to purchase? Yes, yes. So B2C and B2B are very different and I have worked in both types of companies, so have a fair idea of what is different. See, when you're selling from a B2B company perspective, The features that determine whether a B2B company will buy can be put into several buckets. One of the buckets is the order's history. How much has the company bought in the past from you? What is their IT share of wallet that they're spending on you? Because a company that has bought more recently, more frequently, and has bought bigger dollar worth of orders from us is most likely to buy. This works for any B2B company. The longer your relationship, the more frequent the relationship, the stronger it is, is likely to buy. Second is going to be the company firmographics, like, you know, how big is the company in terms of sales? For example, some of our products like NSX, you know, over a period of a year, 
the customers on an average pay around 225k to 250k us dollars so if a company with the sales which is like a million dollars or something like that then it would not be so likely to buy so the company yep. firmographics play a big role for some products like fusion and workstation we have a product called fusion where what happens is you can actually run windows on your mac machine for product like this a smaller company may be more likely to buy individuals may be likely to buy the third set of things is responses to marketing campaigns so like any other b2b company we will send marketing campaigns if people have responded to the campaigns in the past they're more likely and sometimes when people respond to campaigns we also know their job title we also know what role they play in the company so for a product which is like storage virtualization if a storage admin responds he's very likely whereas for a product like nsx right which is like big ticket big value you need the cio or somebody responding some interesting tidbits are also there like how satisfied they are with us so did they respond to our customer survey when they responded to a customer survey were they positive about us have they raised any support tickets on products they've bought from us in the past were they happy with us or not so all these happiness or factors and survey factors and then you know sometimes external data also helps like you know a third party data that is available about these companies and then you know sometimes interesting features are those like product life cycle features so every product has a life cycle where you know the product is introduced the product is adopted you know the product the crossing the chasm thing yes, right the yes, early yes. adopters the innovators the laggards and all of that stuff so at what stage in the product life cycle of other products did they buy these products so broadly we look at the bookings history of the orders history they've had with us how the firmographics the company characteristics some of which we get from dun and brad street how they responded to our marketing campaigns the satisfaction with us as referenced by surveys etc so all these features go in and typically right a propensity to buy model would have like around 500 600 features wow. that are engineered from these different buckets and then a model would be built for a digital model in b2b to be even more because you would add all the clickstream features like did you visit the website what is the kind of asset you consumed on the website what kind of pages you saw and all of that stuff obviously this goes you know pretty deep here you're mentioning you know 500 potential features you're also talking about outside data so you know done in brand street you're talking about purchasing information about companies from external sources and being able to factor that into your models i take it that such kind of third party data is you know somewhat common for these kind of models that need to be very robust and need to include info that you might not have collected it sounds like almost anybody doing propensity to buy b2b would inevitably have some external sources is that safe to say definitely you know in fact they would use outside data even to clean up their companies because yeah. in a b2b company see there are two types of orders right friction orders and frictionless orders a frictionless order is like an order on amazon.com right you use your credit card use swipe you make the payment done but sometimes amazon also orders can be friction meaning you know the payment may not go through somebody may contact you and tell hey revise the payment that is a friction method in b2b kind of company right people are not going to swipe their credit cards and make purchases of 200k 300k right yep. it's all going to happen via purchase request and a purchase order and many times these orders will be manually entered so many times you'll run into a lot of data issues so for example ibm can be international business machines it can be ibm it can be ibm india ibm us yeah. somebody may get spelling of ibm wrong so many times dun and bradstreet data is used to figure out the duplicate stuff and more importantly for a propensity to buy model dun and bradstreet data sets give rich information about their publicly available stuff how many employees does the company have is ibm india the global duns or is it the local duns then what is the sales of the company and where is the company headquarters located all these useful information so all b2b companies will use some form of dun and bradstreet yep. and typically they may also use 
some publicly available information outside Dun & Bradstreet as well. Because in B2B, if you search on Google, you'll find like a large number of companies that sell this information saying it's useful for you in your model. And we've evaluated a bunch of those as well, right? So all of these things. The other common thing in B2B is always is marketing lists, you know? So these are all very common. Third-party data sources yep, are extremely yep. I can imagine, yeah, that that's basically a requirement if you're going to take a propensity to buy model seriously. The last question I have about this before we talk a bit about the future, Karen, is going to be on the topic you had kind of hinted at to some degree related to kind of cleaning of the data. So you'd mentioned you need to sometimes kind of organize the companies you already have and kind of clarify some of that. My guess is, you know, this is a lot of heavy lifting in terms of working with data, working with models. A company who's thinking about setting up a propensity to buy model is likely going to want to think really hard about what are the propensity to buy models that are going to be most valuable for the business, right? A company like VMware, you have a lot of products, you have a lot of buyer segments, you don't really need to build propensity to buy models for, you know, people in Luxembourg who are interested in your your lowest priced products, right? It just doesn't really make sense. It seems like a company needs to, you know, when they're going to do this, they need to find what is a definable geo region product set customer type who, if we knew if they were going to buy, would deliver the most value to the business. And that's where you start your model building. It seems like that's a pretty high level and very important decision. Is that safe to say? Yeah. So I would actually say that when you build a propensity model, you would not take the decision at a geo level, but many times you take the decision at a product level. For example, in B2B, right, the way machine learning algorithms work, they need to look at examples and learn from them. So if you give a machine learning algorithm inputs about only buyers, it'll assume everybody is a buyer, right? So one of the problems in machine learning is something called imbalance, which is the number of examples that you have of success. For example, how many buyers do you have? Let's say we're launching a product in mid of May which is like two weeks from now. We can't have a propensity model for that because there's no historical information available that the machine learning algorithm can learn from. So we will take a decision on whether to build a machine learning algorithm for a product. So once the product is launched, say the product is launched in May, maybe you have 100 customers by August, then you know you start thinking of building a model. When you have a significant number of customers, you can build a propensity model only when you have buyers. So once the buyers happen, why buyers come through, you build a model, and then you refine it over time. As the product lifecycle changes, the nature of the buyers would change. So to your yes. question, I would say it's not a decision you typically make at a geo product level, but you'd make it at a product level. But sometimes, you know, it may so happen, for example, many of the products in B2B, you know, we have to be clear that the market is in the US. The US is the biggest consumer of a lot of these enterprise software products followed by EMEA. APG is usually slow in adoption. So many times you may take a decision saying, hey, let me build this model for Amir and EMEA and build for APG later. Irrespective of the size of the customer, you would like to have a propensity score to him because today's world is so competitive that you know you'd want to like get as much of the pie as possible, right? So yeah, it sounds like as you had mentioned, you know, propensity to buy is not necessarily something that you'd want to do for a geo region, but it'd be something you do for a product. Still, for a product, I imagine you know, looking at the whole suite of products you have, the product life cycle of all those products, the volume and potential market size of all those products, you'd have to look at all that to determine which product do we want to take all this time and buy all this external data and train all these algorithms on yes. uh, before. Yeah. So clearly for you guys at VMware, my guess is your highest priority products are the ones that get that kind of attention. Yes, uh, definitely. This would be used by a lot of people in the company. They'd be used by sales, it'd be used by marketing, yep. they'd be used by the partner organization. 
So everybody uses these because ultimately what a two-buy model does is it rank orders people like who is likely to buy. So if we take a simple example, you want to like get, you're a salesperson in Germany and you have a target of a 50 customers, you'd love a propensity list because you know then which customers you should focus on to get the 50. You can probably target 500 customers based off your own business reasoning and rules of thumb and what worked in your prior company, which is called heuristics. And sometimes they use the hippo logic, right? The highest paid person will say what works. Whereas, uh, <laughs> whereas what happens is if you use a propensity model, we can tell you which are the 500 most likely to buy, which can result in higher sales for you. And then I think the biggest challenge in all this propensity to buy model adoption in companies is really demonstrating the results. Control tests are very important, right? So if you have like 10 salespeople, then one of the things we've done to really increase adoption is try this control test with salespeople. So for example, if you're the sales manager and I am the analytics manager, I would share a list with you and I would tag some accounts as control and some as test. So test would be the accounts which are from my propensity model. Control is what you would have gone on your own. And if you have a team of 10 salespeople, you would give each of them a subset of test accounts, a subset of control accounts. You would tell them which is test and which is control because then they will try to maximize their commissions by calling only test. Yes. So, so you know, you'd have like a 90-10 test control. I would run the campaign for like three to six months because in B2B, nobody makes a purchase decision immediately. They will take time to buy. So yep. the end of three or six months, you'll look at the results, you look at test and control, and then you go, hey, test is doing so much better. And then everybody's like, hey, I want the propensity model. For all analytics leaders, right, I would say, and sales leaders, if you don't do this, because a typical marketing or sales tendency is let me maximize my sales. So they'll say, I'll go after everybody in your list, but then you don't know what's upside from that. And the model cannot learn. So once you demonstrate that something is working from a control test perspective and all of that stuff, that's when the adoption really kicks in because people realize the value that it can bring to the table. This is excellent. I think hopefully the people tuned in who are really thinking about applying this will be able to have some high-level takeaways here. Obviously, this is the kind of thing you've worked on at the mega giants, you know, the Amazons and the Flipkarts of the world, and now at VMware. I think this is valuable lessons to tune into. And that's why I wanted to ask you the final question here, which turns our head to the future for the last couple minutes of this interview. You've been working on, to some degree, again, propensity model stuff at big firms for a while. Clearly not all B2B firms and certainly not all e-commerce companies have an understanding of this technology, but my guess is, most of our listeners I would imagine are B2B, my guess is that this will become somewhat normal for B2B companies at a certain scale. They're going to need to better prioritize and better get a sense of the sales propensity of the various folks that they communicate with to kind of stay competitive. How is this going to change the business landscape? In other words, you know, how is this going to become more accessible to more companies and how is that going to alter the way sales are done? Yeah, no, I think there's a big opportunity today for everybody to leverage machine learning, no matter whether they're big or small, because you don't need like massive teams to do all these propensity models. You need to hire good data scientists. For example, to build a propensity model, I would say you would need like a max of one or two people in any company. And the challenge for small organizations will be two things. One is how do you attract good data scientists? And more importantly, how do you hire good data scientists? So I think there's a lot of opportunity also for things like automated ML kind of things that companies like H2O are doing yep. and all of these automated ML companies like DataRobot or H2O or AI or all of these things because what happens is smaller companies, for example, even if you hire a data scientist, you can't hire somebody on contract to build a model for three months and find a new job. So things are a lot of opportunity today for a product for small B2B companies that can do some form of plug and play to build a propensity model or even engage some outside consultants, which is why we see so many third-party firms doing data sciences. But any B2B company, whether it's big or small, can greatly benefit from a propensity to buy model 
and like I said, this is not the only model we have. We have like a bunch of models like propensity to buy, propensity to respond to digital, propensity to sell for partners, who is likely to respond to an email campaign. There are like a bunch of models that are possible. So the opportunities are clearly limitless. There's obviously, again, as you had mentioned, so much more than just a B2B purchase that we're talking about. You know, you had even mentioned yeah. when somebody shows up on the blog or the website, what content do we want to show them if we're trying to close a B2B sale? There's propensity models to coax out there as well. It seems like you had said talent is going to be the big crux here, being able to find either the internal or external talent to make it happen. Obviously, yeah. that combined with the data is going to be what people need if they're thinking about doing this. Yes, yes. And smaller companies, I think they also need to have a mechanism where they're storing all the historical data because many times people don't realize the power of data, right? So because many times you start on a project and then you figure out the data has to be there. That's what my friends in other companies have told me. And then, you know, you really have to go and see where the data is. So good data management practices are also very important. But typically companies will have the data and more data will always make the models richer and better. So, you know, so I think there's a lot of opportunity and the way things are going, sales and marketing can benefit a lot by targeting the customers most likely to buy rather than use your intuition. Why not use machine learning? Yeah, I think that that argument is going to be stronger and stronger as this technology makes its way into more industries. So Kieran, that's all that we have for time, but this is an excellent interview and thanks for sharing your insights here on AI and industry. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Great talking to you. That's all for this episode on the AI and Industry Podcast, where we explore the applications and implications of AI in your business or industry. And when it comes to those benefits of real insight in terms of artificial intelligence applications in business, this show is really just the tip of the iceberg. AI and Industry is produced by Tech Emergence, and over at techemergence.com, you can find actionable industry-specific coverage, including case studies, unique market research with charts and graphs, and regular coverage of the AI applications of both the hottest startups here in the Bay Area, as well as what Fortune 500 companies are doing with AI today. Everything from marketing and advertising, business intelligence, to specific industries like finance and healthcare, you can stay ahead of the curve and stay on the right side of disruption by visiting techemergence.com. And when you're there, make sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter on the left-hand side of the page. Uh, Most of our podcast listeners get the episodes directly to their inbox every week. You'll be joining tens of thousands of other business leaders who join us from all over the world to stay ahead of the curve of AI in their specific industry. So that's techemergence.com. I'm Dan Fagella. This is AI and Industry, and we'll catch you next week.